My name is Peter. I serve as the lead pastor here at the Springs, and thank you uh, for joining us. If you're visiting, uh, we are doing a new thing today. First, I want to I want to at least say thank you for last week. I heard we had an amazing Sunday last week. My friend Jarrett was in town. We actually had to have a special meeting this week to decide whether or not I would be invited back this week, <laughs> and thankfully, we decided I can come, and so here I am. But uh, uh, seriously, we had a lot of people commit their lives to Jesus for the first time last week. Uh, a few of you went down right after our service in your church clothes right down to the river and got baptized. Um, a lot of powerful stuff. And if you have made such a commitment, perhaps, and you're still processing that, and you need people to process it with, in fact, you need people to process it with, whether you know it or not, um, please don't be in a hurry to leave. Let's, let's talk through things. Let's get connected to a growth group. Uh, we have been seeing God move here. And we want to stick together with one service. We've opened up a few extra seats to make sure we're comfortable, that it can be cozy and not crowded. And I am announcing for the first time, moms and dads, we have a cry room right outside, fit with audio, visual, and everything. I thought that would get a lot more of an applause, but here we go. Onward here. It's a big deal if you're a mom and a dad. So today is a big day, right? I mean... Today's a big day because it's my Bethlehem's second birthday, and Katie, we have birthdays in the house. Uh, I guess someone said that there's like a football game on this evening, I guess. Uh, It's a big day. It's the first Sunday of Black History Month, Uh, but today's a big day because it is the start of our series on love and relationships, our series entitled, It's Not That Complicated. It really is not that complicated. Now, Most of us, however, have grown up with the heartache of complications surrounding dating and love and relationships in our culture. That's the issue. We we, we have felt it very complicated, to say the least. I heard one historian say that almost 100 years ago, the inception of automobiles into our culture put a huge hit on healthy relationships in our culture. It was one huge factor in taking people outside of the protection of the family and other non-complicated, secure social structures. And listen, if they can say that about the automobile, how much more the internet? But I'm here to tell you that even though we are often complicated, it is not that complicated. If we're guided by the truth the timeless truth of God's word, and we find ourselves and understand who we are, whose we are, in light of who he is, then we can see redemption and healing and clarity and clarification and purification. It's not that complicated. Now, these next few weeks, we're going to shake it up a little bit. We're going to do something a little different. Each week before I do a little sermonette, small message, homily, if you will, we're going to bring one of three couples up in our church to share their story about how God has redemptively moved in their lives, in their story, and how it's not complicated based on what God has done in their life. And then I'm going to follow up with a story from God's word that correlates with what he's, the story he's writing with us today. So I have our first couple, a treat for you, Oma and Opa. Glenn and Ellen Shuknik are valuable to us, not just because they're so old, but also 
because they're my in-laws, my in-loves. There's not a weird, unweird way to say that, but they're going to, thank you. Uh, You're not giving me a hug. That's okay, because I can give you a hug. Thank you. This is their beautiful picture. Actually, Ellen's beautiful picture with her groom. And he agrees. So they're going to share their story, and I'm going to come back up and get into God's word. Yes. Hello. So I was thinking that a new trend would start in this church with the lamb chops. All the girls are going to go crazy, I'm sure. I got to thinking, why are we first up here? And uh, I think Peter's philosophy is, if Glenn can make it for 42 years, it can't be that complicated. (laughs) Go back with me. Think back to August 1973. Oh, that's right. Most of you can't do that. I was a senior in college, first day. I had had my birthday. My parents got me a shorts and shirt outfit, and I went to class, my first class in the morning, 8 o'clock class, and I'm sitting there by myself. Now, that is the first time in four years that I have been the first one in a classroom for a class. And I'm starting to panic. Do I have the wrong room? Is it really the first day of school? And I'm sitting there in the middle. All of a sudden, a girl comes to the door. Homecoming princess, cheerleader. Amazing. She comes in, and she sits right next to me. And we exchange some pleasantries. You know, how was your summer? What did you do? The class met a couple days later. My mama didn't raise no dummy. Guess who's showered, deodorant, toothbrush? I mean, we are, we're ready. And I am definitely the first one in class again. And sure enough, she comes in, sits right there again. The problem with her is she dated gigantic hunk football players. Like 6'8", 300. It wasn't good looking good. So, uh, and to show you how smooth I am, I'm at, we're at a function together. She's with another guy. I'm with another girl. And I see her coming, and I see a broom. So I pick up the broom and swat her on the butt. Smooth, huh? It actually worked out well because this big hunk football player thought that that was some secret code I had. And he got really jealous, and next thing I know, they break up. It worked out okay. <laughs> in November, we started dating, and in uh, August, we're meeting my parents in southern Oregon, and uh, it's a campground where there's whitewater rafting. And so Ellen and I are going whitewater rafting, down the Rogue River. And Ellen probably should have gotten a little bit of a clue about the future of the relationship because I asked her to marry me in Hell's Gate Canyon. (laughs) The second thing she should have had a clue, my grandfather married us three months later 
wasn't going to let her get away. Didn't have, you know, there wasn't much time here, right? So three months later, my grandfather married us, and in the premarital counseling, he said, um, I always preach the sermon in the wedding according to how much I think the couple needs it. So I'm thinking, all right, short, on to the honeymoon. We are good here. I'm, I'm, I'm great. After uh, one of the bridesmaids has collapsed, two more are sitting on the stage, <laughs> and an hour of sermon... I'm thinking, whoa. <laughs> and so I'll let you t- Ellen tell you some more. Okay, we had, we had a very quick engagement. And I think in those days, you know, we just felt called that God had called us together. And uh, it just, so we got married. And I had all these rosy ideas of how a marriage is going to look. <laughs> um, but very soon, it just really did not look the way I had envisioned. I had envisioned, you know, long conversations and walks together, and instead, Glenn spent his time working and pursuing his interests, and I was home alone. And I had envisioned cooking these great meals by candlelight, and I would do that on occasion, and he would show up after the food was cold. And on and on it goes, I had a deep need for affirmation and to be accepted, and I envisioned getting that, and instead I got a lot of correction and criticism, and things started to get kind of hard. Actually, they got really, really hard. Now, I want to interject something right now. I was telling Glenn what I was going to say, and I had all this stuff in there that was nice toward him, (laughs) and he says, you're not being honest. He says, tell the real story. (laughs) So, this is not me trying to bash Glenn, but uh, things really were very, very difficult for me. I was honestly pretty miserable and disappointed. And I want to say this. Peter is so right. It wasn't complicated. It might have been hard, but it wasn't complicated because we had made a vow, a covenant vow in our marriage that we would stay married for life come what may. I just didn't know how to deal with the come what may part. (laughs) So, um... I tried things. My first attempts were to really just try to please Glenn harder and harder and harder, and I never could quite be enough. Um, Then I tried getting silent and holding in the anger and bitterness and just not saying much. And, And really, all that did was blind me to my own heart and my own sin. It was all about what Glenn was doing. And uh, I remember one point in our life where I just decided we hadn't been talking much. We really weren't getting along. We had three kids at that point. I was pouring into the kids. Glenn was pouring into all of his other stuff. And I remember thinking, I'm just going to stop trying to please this guy. And so I did this reversal. I went the other direction. I just didn't try to please him. And I told him everything I thought. And he was like, whoa, what happened to this lady? I kind of did the reverse uh, stuff. And that, again, didn't work because anger and harshness does not bring about what God is wanting. And finally, I have to say, there's a point in our marriage where we realized that marriage was about change, that it's a transformative journey and God uses another person to grow us toward holiness. And when I started to understand that my relationship wasn't necessarily at that point about me being happy. It was about me growing in holiness, and I started to focus on my own heart. 
It was then that I started to see Glenn change. So I just want to end my part by saying I'm so grateful for God showing me what I needed to do differently because when I did that, Glenn started to see his own ways too. And we started a journey of change, and that did lead to happiness. So one of the things that, that we, uh, we had some trouble with was, um, actually, I loved the way it was. <laughs> I had a great servant. She was amazing. She cooked really well. She was, it was just amazing. And I wasn't real fond of the change. But I began to think, you know, this isn't complicated. There are some changes I need to make. I played basketball. I sat basketball in college. <laughs> I got a good seat every game, but that was it. Anyway, I was a competitor. I wanted to compete. So anytime she and I argued, I won and lost. But I, I got to thinking, of course I've got to win. That's part of being a competitor. Until I realized, and, and it wasn't that complicated for most people maybe, we're on the same team. What, I, I'm not winning when she's losing. I'm winning when she's winning. And that was one of my first ones. Another one that... Uh, Ellen loves to sleep in a bed that's rumpled and just all cruddy. <laughs> and I was sure that in the Bible it said that she had to make the bed every, every morning, but that she needed to do it the way I wanted it done. And her way meant my feet were cold every single night. Six foot four, they stuck out the bottom. And I tried in, to help her be a better servant by telling her exactly how she had to make the bed over and over and over again. And finally, I realized it's not that complicated. Just make the bed, you dummy. Make it your way. And so for the last 30-some years, I bet Ellen's made the bed 10 times. That's just, it, it's easy. Why didn't I think of those things? And so what I want to get across, it's not that complicated. But we have to become unselfish. Marriage is hell for selfish people. And when I finally became unselfish, I made it a goal. I was going to do more for her than she was going to do for me, and I was keeping track. <laughs> and after a while, I didn't keep track anymore. But I sure made sure that I was ahead somehow because I wanted to be, not because I needed to be. That's the key. Just be un unselfish. So I just want to say that, if you, that it doesn't have to be complicated. We just have to listen to the Lord and be willing to change our own hearts. And I'm so grateful we made that difference. We're still married after 42 years. And it's also a pretty practical thing that, of course, he needs to make the bed because she's getting up earlier and praying for him. It's like, man, this guy, he needs a lot of prayer. But I do want to honor Glenn because I've known Glenn for 
what, 20-something years now, I came to know Jesus in his math classroom, saw the power of God in their family, got a crush on their daughter, and now we're going on 11 years married. And over the years, I've seen this guy, and typically old men, grow crusty and more selfish. But I've seen the very simple and non-complicated way that a man who's shaped by the word of God can grow more and more pliable and humble over the years. And that's the legacy that my children get to see in their grandfather. I want to share with you a one-point message, and it's going to be real simple. God is the author of your story. In fact, Glenn and Ellen's story showed that. We're going to see Isaac and Rebecca's story show that, and you're going to help me preach that. Turn to your neighbor and say, hey, God is the author of your story. Now turn to the na- your other neighbor and say the same thing, a little bit more, a little bit more f- with more faith. I want to read from you from Genesis 24. Most of the verses that I'm going to read will not be on the screen, so you can follow along with me. Here's the correlation between Abraham and Glenn right off. It says, now Abraham was old. (laughs) I'll be paying for that. All right. So Abraham is old, well advanced in years. You can take that down until I get to verse seven. Uh, Verse one, well advanced in years, the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, he said, put your hand under my thigh, that I may swear by the Lord, the God of heaven, the God of the earth, that you will not take for my wife, not, will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. <clears throat> but I will go, but you will go to the country to my kindred to take a wife for my son Isaac. He wanted his son to have the same faith as him, not to worship other gods. And so he wanted his son to, to be surrounded by people and kindred that were of his same tribe. And so this servant was commanded to go, and the servant was doubting. He said, perhaps the woman may not be willing to go all the way back here from that land. Must I then take your son back? He says, should I just go ahead and take Isaac with me? So that you know, they'll see his handsome face and be like, all right, I'll, I'll follow you anywhere. And Abraham said to him, do not do that. Do not take my son back. Verse seven, check this out. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you and you shall take from my, from my son a wife from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you'll be free from this oath of mine. See, he trusted that God is in this. God is the author of his story. So the servant put his hand under Abraham's thigh. Now, I don't know why that was a thing then, but just to clarify, that's not a thing anymore. But it showed vulnerability that he's going to swear to do what Abraham told him to do. 
And so he's off. Now what we'll see is that Abraham's servant didn't have the same trust in God being the author of the story that he did. He knew that the stakes were high. Like Abraham's, his, his master's whole life progeny, legacy was wrapped up in this task that he was assigned to do. And he was a little bit nervous. And he stopped and he said, God, give me favor. It says that he went all the way to the land of Nahor, miles and days away. And he said, Lord, please grant success. And then he starts to give God a little bit of a test. It says that the camels he was with bowed down before some water. He saw some women coming out from the city that Abraham had directed him to. And he gave him a test. He said, God, whichever of these women, when I ask for water, replies verbatim, yeah, I'll give you some water and also I will give water to your camels to drink. He said, that woman will be the one that I take back. So Abraham said, it's the woman that's willing to go. And he adds, whoever says that exact thing. See, he needed a little test because he didn't have the same trust. Now it says in verse 16, there was a young woman, very attractive in appearance, a maiden who who had known no man named Rebecca. And she was out and approached the man. And he went up to her and said, can I have some water? And she said, verse 18, drink my Lord. And she quickly laid down her jar upon and gave him some to drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, now I will draw water for your camel's also, and she runs and gets water for his camels. And Abraham's servant is just sitting here dumbfounded. It says he was gazing at her like, what is happening? When she came back, he gives her a gold ring, chains, not even knowing if this is the one. He just, he can, he's rich like that. And he asks, Who, what tribe are you from? He finds out they're from the exact same tribe of, as his his master Abraham, daughter of Bethuel. It says in verse 26, the man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, bless the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his love and his faithfulness towards my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in a way, in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. This is providential says that Rebecca went back with him so that she could explain to her dad and her brothers all this that had gone down. It says, after they explained this amazing miracle, it says that uh, Rebecca's brother Laban and Bethuel, her father, answered when requesting from this servant, if she could come back with him, they said, the thing has come from the Lord. We can't speak to you either bad or good. In essence, God is the author of this story. You don't need our permission. This is of God. But what I love in this story that some of us miss is he still waited the next day until they could get Rebecca's confirmation of whether or not she could feel that God was in this. It says the next day, verse 58, they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. And so they journeyed back and I'll pick it up at verse 61. This is a great scene. If you need to close your eyes for this, you can close your eyes. Then Rebecca and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed this man. And thus the servant took Rebecca and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahiroi and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward the evening. And he lifted up his eyes and he saw, behold, there were camels coming. And Rebecca lifted up her eyes. At the same time, their eyes met. 
And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, who is that tall drink of water right there? (laughs) She said, who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, it's my master. It's Isaac. And she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that God had done and he had done. And then Isaac brought her into the tent of his home and took Rebekah and she became his wife and he loved her. What a story. Listen, clearly God was in that story. God was the author of Isaac and Rebecca's story. But here's what I want to drive home before we leave today. That God is also the author of your story. You see, many of us, we, we can believe things like God is loving. But, but believing God loves me where I am right now. Or that God's hand is in my story my love story. That's different. That requires very specific faith, which is what God is after. I would venture to say that most of us, probably all of us, our love story hasn't involved or will not involve your father sending his servant on a search for your bay (laughs) or thirsty camels. But the same God is orchestrating your life today. And it's a fight for your life for whether or not you will trust what he's doing, whether you believe it or not. The only one missing out is you. Because God is God. And he's still sovereign and he's orchestrating his plan. He's the author of your story. Now, with that, I want three things to drive this home. Three thoughts, three takeaways to drive home this point that God is the author of your story. There's three implicit things that are uh, commands, if you will. They're imperatives for you. If you trust that God is the author of your story, here's three takeaways for you to really believe it and walk in that trust. Retreat, resign, remember. First of all, first takeaway, retreat from your story and rest in God's. Retreat from all the things you've been striving to do to make your story happen, to make your love story go forward and the messes that you've made as a result. Retreat and rest in God's story. I wonder if the reason that Abraham insisted three times here that his son didn't go back to where they had come from was because he wanted his son to move forward into the promise and to not go backwards in his his view and his life focus. I wonder if he, if he knew that when his son saw all the good options out there, he would miss the, the God option for him. There's only one. There only needs to be one for him. I, I wonder if he knew the implicit struggle to go backwards. and He didn't want his son being dragged back into that. How often is that the case with us? that we go down different paths trying to make things work and trying to be good. And maybe they're good things. Maybe they're technically good things we do, good relationships, kind of. Maybe they're good, but they're not God. 
They're not his providential plan for us. And so, so often then the, we, our, our desire, our, our, our need is to hand over the ability from authoring our own plan and retreat from the mess we've made so that we can be ready to receive what God gives us. Imagine if Rebecca was met by the servant of Abraham and she was busy with all sorts of other okay things, but not God things. Defiling herself with, herself with other lesser things. Now listen, that's where God meets all of us. I don't see anywhere here where we're shown exactly what Rebecca had to retreat from to be able to receive God's plan. But all of us are in that place. Retreat from worry and fear and all the other defilements of our earth, earthly thinking and feeling so that we could receive and and understand and trust in God's plan. God is the author of your story, and so we need to retreat from our little false narratives that we build up so often. Next few weeks, we're going to talk a lot about practical things, about what to do, how to, how to build healthy relationships, how to understand from God's story and his word about practical things to do. But the most practical thing that you can gather today is stop. Chill out. Back up. Stop striving. Stop trying to figure out how to make it happen. Back up. Retreat from all the things that you and I try to do that really just make more messes. And trust God. How often is it that our, our desire to try to speed things up in love and dating and relationships is the very thing that slows us down? And the biggest thing holding us up from what God has planned for our life is when we try to enter in our plans and we try to help God out a little bit. He's doing a good job being God. Retreat. Next, resign yourself from the burden of being the author of your story. Now this sounds a lot like retreat. But how often is it there that you retreat from a dark path and because you haven't resigned yourself to aim at trusting God actively, that you wind up in a different path that's, man, it's like deja vu. Like, man, I've been here before. He just looks a little different or she just looks a little different. Retreat means that we need to step out of the things that we've stepped into but actually actively trust in God. In our marriages, married people, so often there's habits that come from because we're trying to make things better all on our own in a way that's striving rather than trusting God. And habits form. Habits in how we communicate with our spouse. Habits with, with things that we do to, instead of having faith in God. And we need to resign ourselves from being the author of our story so that we can trust that God is the author of our story. Now, I, if you're a single person here, in fact, beautiful, we have so many beautiful single young women here. I want to just tell you this. Of the three or four billion men out there that might think you're beautiful, know this. God agrees, but only one of them does he have planned for you. So you don't have to worry. If you get lots of compliments, you can say lovingly and comfortably say no to all sorts of guys and say yes to God and trust in him and resign from having to be the one that has to make that happen. And I'm going to pick on myself for a second because I need to resign from this area too. I'll tell you something that happened a few weeks ago. I have have three beautiful young daughters. And as they're growing up, my nervousness at the state of manhood in our generation today 
is also kind of growing with it. And I'll be nice here when I say, young men seem to be more and more complicated. And we, as a culture, have made turning into, from a boy into a man way more complicated and added so much shame and confusion to it. And so I look out there and I get nervous. Like, man, there's going to be slim pickings for my daughters here. <laughs> and so I caught myself a few weeks ago saying something like, man, so if that's the way things are, I got to really work hard to disciple our young men so that my daughters will have someone to, to spend their life with. True. But God is still God. And I need to resign myself from that area where I think that I need to play his role, where he needs my help. I need to trust him, and I need to pray for their spouses the way that Glenn and Ellen prayed for me and the way they're still praying for me when I still tend to complicate things over a decade into this. Retreat, resign, and finally remember. If you're single here and you're waiting on God's future provision, let's say you want to be married, I, th- I would say most single people, not all, want to be married. And if that's you, that's great. But can you stop and remember all the other things that God has already provided for you? Can you remember the other areas of your life where you've tried to help God out and it's made a mess? I have just have to sort through all of them. Can you rest in what God has done? If you're married in here, and maybe you're like Ellen, where you stepped into marriage and what you thought marriage was going to be like is kind of not what it is, and so you sure are trying to make things better, but sometimes your efforts maybe cause a little disdain, bitterness on both ends. Can you, can you stop and just remember what God has done for you so that you can be aimed at trusting him for your future as he's continuing to write your story and using your struggles and your hurts and your heartache, none of your pain will be wasted. Can you, can you stop and rest in God and remember what he's done for you? In fact, check this out. One chapter later, Isaac and Rebecca met each other and it's a great story, but that's not the end of their story. They were married for years and had pressures on their marriage. Chapter 25 shares that they had been struggling with infertility for years. Verse 20 of chapter 25, Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, to be his wife. Verse 21, and Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now, I remember a few years ago when my wife and I were struggling through infertility and sickness. I remember reading this verse and being like, man, things were so easy in Bible times. They just asked and got answered and things have gotten so complicated for me. Well, I realized later that it was not complicated for them, but it was just as hard and difficult to trust God as it is for me. Here's where I saw it. I didn't see until a few years ago A few verses later, it says, it describes when he prayed and asked God and God gave him the answer. And it's describing when Esau was born. And then verse 28, afterward, his brother, Esau's brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. His name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when he bore them. And when the boys grew up, wait, time out. What did that just say? I read so fast. We need to slow down and read. 
It said he was 60 years old. So this whole thing where I was like, man, he asked and God answered. Yeah, in 20 years. Man, I'm a millennial. I'm at the front age of that 20 years. I can't wait 20 minutes. He trusted God. How, over those two decades, how often did they have to get together to remember God's providential plan, to remind one another about the sovereign hand of God in their life so that they could be positioned to trust God, that God is still God, and we can still stand on his promise, which is stronger than our concerns and our feelings. It's not complicated. It's just really difficult, and we need God. We complicate things, but it is not that complicated. So what helps you to remember as you're waiting on God's provision? What, what helps you? For me and my wife, going on 11 years now, some of the best memories are the hardships that we've overcome together. It draws us closer as a team. As you get older, like me, in marriage, after the first decade, it's easy, automatic almost, for marriage to become kind of stale. And I'm going to warn every married person in here and every future married person in here, don't just rely on your best efforts to keep the spark going in your marriage. You need to stop and remember God's sovereign hand in your marriage. You need to get together and pray together and thank God for his mercy and his grace in your life and specifically remember the things that he's done. Uh, Two or three days ago, uh, all of us, my wife was cooking dinner and I was kind of trying to wrangle my deuce animals running around our, our room. And uh, the song, I was listening to uh, uh, 90s country. It's my favorite station. It's the best. And a song came on that we danced to in senior prom like 17 years ago or something like that. Lone Star, y'all know this song. Don't know why you do what you do. So in love with you. Oh, It just keeps getting better. It does. (laughs) And we were able to remember what God's done in our life. I got to share that with my my oldest daughter, and she wasn't feeling it like I was feeling it, but she will. (laughs) Can you stop? Can you remember what God has done in your life? As we draw to a close, I have some homework for all y'all whether you're waiting on God's provision and your love story and you're single right now or you're married and you're waiting on God's provision, the battle of whether or not you will trust that he is a good God and he is the author of your story, the battle is raging and there are lives at stake. And so here's some homework. If you're, if you're single here, my challenge to you is in a growth group, and or outside of a growth group this next week. You've got seven days as your deadline. Come to church with the joy of having checked this off and seen what God does in this homework. I want you to get together with a trusted friend if you're single. Share with them what you desire God to do. Maybe something you feel God's spoken to you about your future marriage. And, and, and confess that. Say, this is what I'm hoping for. But then stop there And remember a few things that God has provided in your life in the last five or six years. Start listing things that God has done that was unlikely, improbable, impossible that he's done in your life. And it's not mind over matter, it's memory over feeling of today. 
remind yourself what God has done. If you're married here, I have a challenge for every married couple that this week get together at some point, maybe when the kids go down, whatever works best for you, and share with one another your top, each person's top three memories of what God has redemptively done in your story. Talk about it and then pray together. Pray, thank God and praise him for what he's done and ask him for the real needs that you have. Are we okay with this homework? Do you accept this challenge today? If so, then say I do. We need to trust God. It's not complicated. It's just impossible on our own. We need Jesus, the author and perfecter, not just of our love story, but our faith. We need his help. In fact, think, think about Jesus and his life story compared to Isaac and Rebecca. Rebecca was the bride who was delicately led to ascend Abraham's land to find her groom and to live happily ever after, right? to know it would be a little difficult, but that's her story. Jesus, in contrast, it was like a a reversal of that. It was the groom led to face his bride, to win his bride, but led harshly to a cross so that he could die the death that we should have died in our place. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead so that we could have his life in us and truly, truly live happily ever after. And be positioned to trust him and believe in him and see him move miraculously in our story. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you. We thank you, Lord. We, we command ourselves to remember. We command our feelings to remember. To have more precedence for what you've done sovereignly than what we're worried about you, whether you will or will not do today or tomorrow. Help us to trust that you're the author of our story and do a miracle in our hearts so that we could truly trust you. Amen.